You are now listening to a podcast made in collaboration with the Copenhagen College Radio. Merry Christmas! Ho, 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 ho. Welcome to a very special Christmas edition of the Social Media and Politics Podcast, bringing you expert insights into how social media is changing the political game. I'm your host, Michael Bassetto, PhD student at the University of Copenhagen. Thanks for tuning in. Today I'm joined by a good friend and colleague, Dr. Anna-Maria Duczek-Segestin, Assistant Professor in European Studies at Lund University in Sweden. Dr. Segestin's most recent publication, co-authored with yours truly, is a journal article entitled A Typology of Political Participation Online, How Citizens Use Twitter to Mobilize During the 2015 British General Elections, which you can find in the Journal of Information, Communication, and Society. Dr. Segestin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So we'll have to do a show on that study at some point next year. But uh, for now, this episode is all about 2016. And uh, just to fill our listeners in, we wanted to do something with a Christmas slash New Year's themed episode. And what we've decided to do is combine aspects from both holidays. So to capture the year in review, we've each picked the top three most interesting things we wanted to talk about relating to social media and politics, which is like six Christmas presents of knowledge to you, our listeners. So if you'd like to give us a Christmas present back, you can do that by leaving us a review in the iTunes store. And we've been out for, what, six weeks, eight weeks? Max. Somewhere around that. And we already have listeners from 17 different countries. Um, Most of our listeners are coming from the U.S., but then followed by Denmark, Sweden, Germany, the U.K., Netherlands. Canada, um, Norway, Australia, Bulgaria. So we can't actually have our ear on the ground in all of these places. So if you have a topic that you'd like us to uh, to cover, go ahead and tweet us at SMNP podcast, or you can send us a message at facebook.com forward slash social media and politics podcast. So we've got three interesting topics that we wanted to discuss. And um, we talked a little bit before the show and we had some overlap on our three. Yeah, we did. But I think uh, because I'm your guest, I have the privilege of keeping mine, right? Yes, of course. And um, keeping with uh, keeping with Southern tradition, ladies first. So go ahead. And what was your, um, I don't know, should we rank it as number one or? No, not necessarily. They're all equal in importance in my eyes. But we can just pick one which comes first to mind. And my number one topic to bring up for this uh, year in review would be the presence of bots. Bots. Bots on social media. And not just uh, Trump, even though I'll spend some time hopefully uh, talking about Trump and his hired hands, uh, but bots in general. It's something also that you and I have found uh, being at work in the general elections uh, for the British Parliament in 2015. Other people have also found bots at work in the elections for uh, the parliament in Mexico, in Venezuela, uh, in the campaign towards uh, the e referendum, so-called Brexit referendum in the UK. So bots are kind of everywhere, but the most spectacular bots are Trump bots. Trump bots. Right. So my number one point is Trump bots and what what do we know about them? And actually, uh, it's a question for you. Do you know when a bot is a bot? No, but I'm 
interested. Apparently, if we are to believe research done at the Oxford uh, Internet Institute, a bot is a bot if an account, for example, on Twitter, posts more than 50 times a day. 50 times a day is the definition of a bot. Yep. 50 mm-hmm. times a day is considered to be slightly too much for a human to do. But at the peak of the bot war or the bot propaganda, which is the day before the American presidential elections, again, the number one number that comes to mind is 1,300 times a day. Mm. That's how often some of the top 20 uh pro-Trump bots were spamming. So 1,300 messages on Twitter a day. Mm. Do you agree with this definition? I think it's quite problematic. And actually, Twitter itself disputed that, saying that it's very possible for a human, a regular human, to be present online on Twitter uh, with more than 50 messages a day because they would engage in dialogue with other Twitter accounts. And that would generate a conversation maybe with 100 tweets. But this is the norm that the Oxford Internet Institute uh, team has adopted. And apparently, it's not so controversial outside of Twitter um, Um, internal dispute. Um, It's interesting uh, that it's an ideological divide as well if we look at the American politics scene that pro-Trump bots appear to be more active, generating more messages, engaging more people than the pro-Clinton ones. And this has been constant. I have some numbers from the uh, first presidential debate. Apparently, uh, when they were collecting tweets uh, for those hashtags, a third of the tweets supporting Trump were actually generated by accounts that were not human in nature, even though it sounds very spooky. There, there were no no humans, as opposed to 22% of pro-Clinton tweets. So it's not like the Clinton campaign did not have any bots, but at the beginning, it was about a third in favor of Trump, and that number accelerated to a higher number um, in towards the end of the campaign. So Trump bots seem to be quite the name of the game. But I, I have a, a bit of an issue with this 50 times a day equaling a bot. I think a bot has to be some sort of, and we don't know so much, the research on bots is just kind of coming out, right? And it's it sort of exploded recently. And we found some bots in, in some data sets looking at the 2015 British elections. And well, it's complicated because what we thought were bots, we actually direct messaged them on Twitter and found out that many of them were actually people. And what they were doing was they were using a function called recurring tweets, where there's a website or a third-party program where you can tell this program to spam out a message. So in this sense, it's kind of a cyborg between a, uh, a human who's getting computer-assisted help. So it's not entirely a program That's thing. exactly the point. That's exactly the point. It comes up when you're doing research on bots that the fact that you have a robot mind uh, at work, it doesn't mean that there's no human involvement. Actually, there's definitely, without any doubt, a human that takes hand of the actual programming of these algorithms. But one human can be behind a thousand of such accounts. So there is an attempt to humanize them. At the same time, these are automated algorithmic Mm, scripts, basically. So that's what uh, the bot gives this image of us, of a, you know, of a, 
I don't know what character from the films I should say R two D two or should I go uh, uh, more eighties and uh, what's the name of that famous uh, Blade Runner, right? You're right. Uh, replicas. Replicas, right? I, it's not necessarily that kind of bot, right? It's just a lot of scripts that run in the background that feed into the Twitter uh, sphere and generate automated texts, and that's basically the the bot part of it. So there's always a human behind it, and there's always a human responsible for it. And that's the interesting question from a political point of view. Who's responsible for the bots? Because they're machines, right? They, they cannot be a, held accountable for being. So that's an interesting future, future-oriented question. Also, the other question is, do they have an impact? They spam a lot. We also found that, like, lots and lots of messages. Do they generate any kind of extra support that human accounts wouldn't have? Uh, do they change people's mind? I don't know. Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, so. Aha, uh-huh, okay. I, I have to have an opinion on this. All right. Uh, let me think. Well, it can have, this. the bots can have an effect if you're thinking about information distribution. What research uh, has proven is that nobody makes a difference, no user makes a difference between bot accounts and human accounts once they have read them. And so they're just as likely to disseminate the content of the bot-supported news further into their personal network. So it is, in a sense, helping pro-Trump, in this case, or pro-any candidate, penetrate deeper into the personal networks of a larger audience. I mean, in that sense, we can say they do have an effect. But in terms of credibility or persuasion, I think this is when we're really on thin ice. I wouldn't want to comment on that. We don't have any any numbers on this. Right. But my, my kind of gut feeling, because in, in the case we looked at, we found that the sort of bot or the most active accounts were supporters of the UK Independence Party, which kind of has a controversial leave the EU message. Um, The focus on the Trump bots outweighing the Hillary bots also supports this kind of anti-establishment type of message. And so I think there's an argument to be made that these bots have a sort of socially normalizing effect. What do you mean socially normalizing? Well, you have bots that are sort of it seems that they're more active distributing a controversial message or one that's kind of maybe not accepted. So you might have a bot tweeting about um, immigration and building a wall, which is highly controversial in the beginning. And I think that, you know, in terms of whether these bots have a real political impact, it's hard to say. But I think we can say that people seeing controversial messages um, being exposed, if if they're overrepresented on the Twitter sphere, it might have a sort of normalizing effect where people feel that it's socially okay to talk about these things. I see where you're getting. It's interesting also talking talking about the Trump bots again because this is where I've been uh, I've been you know fascinated by this topic. Apparently, uh, research again has been identifying a group of bots that were pretending to be coming from African-American account holders so that they would say the president, yes, there are African-Americans who are in favor of Trump. This is not a racial divide within the voting population. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it is okay if if this African-American wants to vote for Trump, so can you, other African-Americans. And they were precisely trying to target that particular demographics on Twitter. So, yeah, I think normalization, making, making it acceptable for others to follow suit and use the same hashtags, for example. Yes. And there's there's still we just don't know who's a bot, who's not a bot. Uh, the research on bots is relatively new. Um, so this is something that and also I think um, Twitter, Facebook, these companies are taking kind of a they're under pressure to take a harder stand on identifying and closing down bots. And that kind of brings in a, a free speech question, right? 
There are lots of questions. I think uh, I think we we don't want to we don't want to go there as long. We will just speculate, right? Yeah. Do you want to go to to your gift to the listeners first? Gift yes, to my the listeners. My first gift uh, <laughs> under the tree is 2016 was the first major American election with Snapchat. So my first uh, point is the rise of Snapchat for political campaigning and information. So. 2015 more than 2016 was huge for Snapchat. They launched their Discover feature and it's been updated. What's the Discover feature again? The Discover feature is basically broadening uh, what you can do on Snapchat from just talking between your friends to having the sort of broadcast feature where, um, you know, Cosmopolitan or uh, BuzzFeed, they have their certain stories that you can go read that usually connect to, to media articles. And kind of what's interesting is that This is really a, a really a new forum for advertisement. That's where they can place their ads. And there's plenty of examples uh, in the U.S. Open. Gatorade, I think it was, sort of worked their campaign into the story feature. So those that was so subtle. I don't. I think I watched that story on Snapchat, and I never even thought that I was watching publicity. Yeah, because they didn't want to put advertisements and communication among users, but they have this new platform where they can essentially very solicit ads. very intriguing way of doing things. These guys are smart. So also in 2015, there was the first political story, which, do you know what it was? Uh, 2015, what could it be? It no, I have Oh, God. I should, 2015. No, that was not the parliament election because that was 2014. Close. It was Greece and when they had a referendum on whether to oh, take the yes. bailout. Oh, yes. God, I actually have watched that story, too. So it was it would sort of present what the pro and anti arguments were for the for the referendum and kind of, I think, maybe a test run for the presidential elections, right? And what we've seen is Snapchat taking more of a, from, from their side, so we're not even talking about politicians campaigning at this point, but Snapchat actually launched its, um, its own curated content about the election with this show called Good Luck America, which was hosted by Peter Hamby, who is Snapchat's news coordinator, but was hired away from CNN. A newsman, a, a news journalist, so yeah. They know what they're doing. And the idea of this Good Luck America show was to, quote, provide young voters with an informative and entertaining glimpse into what life on the campaign trail is like. You know, this is only available in the U.S. because here in Europe, I, I was never offered the option of watching anything like that. And that's an interesting thing. So we're here in Denmark, Sweden, yeah. respectively. Um, and it's very tough because, and we'll get into this in a second, all the geolocation aspects is very much a part of Snapchat's business model. Um, but that doesn't stop uh, users like us from subscribing to major politicians, which is kind of the cool part of Snapchat, as you can see what they do. So... I've been very interested in this and have been um, collecting Snapchats from a lot of the major politicians. And so I can just kind of tell you a little bit about my observations of what I've seen. You mean candidates in the presidential? Candidates uh, in the presidential election, yeah. mostly in the in the primary. So from the Republican side, we had um, Scott Walker, Ted Cruz, Chris Christie, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio and Rand Paul. There were lots. Yeah, lots. And that might not be an exhaustive list, but just the ones that I was able to identify, which is tough because it didn't seem that the candidates were very much promoting their Snapchat handle. I didn't know Jeb Bush was on until the very end before he dropped out. So I kind of missed those uh, those snaps. But from the Democrats, we had Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton and Martin O'Malley. And basically all of them. Yeah, right. <laughs> all three, of them three. Three of five. <laughs> and it was really interesting 
to watch the different ways because it was kind of the first time that this was an election with Snapchat. And so what were they actually doing? And um, I haven't looked too much in depth, but some of the common things that I kind of identified as I was watching them was, um, I have four here. Number one is that they would really use it to promote their mainstream media appearances. Like what? So you'd see them, you know, at six in the morning, sitting down in a conference room in a hotel saying, you know, we're going to be on Fox and Friends at 8 p.m. We'll be on Megyn Kelly Live, Chris Hannity at whatever. And um, so it kind of gave you a um, look in the backstage of how an interview goes down. They would just have a tarp behind them and it would be, you know, whatever time in the morning. But it was really to kind of, I guess, connect with supporters to tell them when they could see a media appearance, which for the academics is kind of this hybrid media type of perspective, bringing in the new media Alerting, alerting potential audiences exactly. to the to the mainstream media. I get it. So another one or another feature that I noticed was hashtag promotion. So hashtag promotion on Snapchat on Snapchat. So it would say, you know, um, to follow more, uh, check out hashtag cruise country or hashtag I'm with her or hashtag Marco Mentum. So it's kind of Marco Mentum. Some hashtags are better than others. Yes, that's for sure. Yes. And it, it, it kind of. It seemed like, I mean, I guess that would be aimed mostly at Twitter. So, again, this kind of hybrid media connection. Um, But probably the most um, common was just Snapchats from the rallies. So just panning out and seeing large swaths of people cheering. But it wasn't the actual candidate that was Snapchatting. It was somebody from their team and the candidate was shown on the Snap, right? So it wasn't, it's hard to tell the difference whether, because Snapchat is really when you the user is filming a story, you're in at a concert, you take a cool video, whatnot. But these stories are actually of the candidate, not by the candidate, right? Right. So, and, and there was really a lot of, it varied a lot how different politicians kind of strategically tried to use it. Um, so, yeah, it, it. I don't know whether it was one person whose job was to be the official Snapchat curator, whatever we might call them. But what really struck out to me was... Lots of crowds, but also the geo filter, which was very important. Um, so I think it was basically just to show all the different places that the the candidate has been has been going. And talk a little bit more about geo filters in a second. But the last one, the one that I was hoping the most to see in this election to kind of unlock the democratic potential of this medium was directly addressing the audience. So saying, hey, Snapchatters, um, this is, you know, our message to you, or this is, you know, making a mobilizing call to for an event. Or... Some form of engaging your audience. Exactly. Like expecting something back from them. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or just using it as a tool to directly communicate with supporters. And there was a little bit of that. And I got to tip the hat to Scott Walker. I think he was the best um, at actually using Snapchat to communicate directly in something that you couldn't find on Twitter or Facebook. Very personal. I was just curious about that. If you will have the time later to, to say why Snapchat is different. Like I, why, why did you focus on Snapchat and not on Twitter? Well, I think I think it goes to this idea of getting getting kind of the a, a behind the scenes look at the campaign. So a lot of the snaps were, um, you know, a candidate traveling on a bus and just kind of getting an idea of what what's actually going on on a campaign. And I actually I learned a lot just by seeing what was going on it, it didn't um it's it's something that you don't really have a glimpse into it's kind of the you know uh nuts and bolts of a campaign driving More around. private exactly and being up at five in the morning for an interview oh usually you just see it on tv where they have some sort of fake uh, green screen behind them right so it's cool to see actually how it um 
how it works and kind of gives a more human element to the campaigning. Um, but there was definitely a lot of varying proficiency. Some were good Snapchatters and some were bad. So uh, I have a couple examples that... Uh, so who is your most favorite? Uh, you said already Scott Scott Walker? I, I appreciate Scott Walker's um, uh, use of directly addressing people. But I have to give my favorite Snapchat. And this is <laughs> this is kind of funny. So I mentioned Bernie Sanders was on Snapchat. Yeah. So I had basically put all the candidates' name into a list, to hoping that when they started Snapchatting, they would come up. So there was a guy named... Or his Snapchat handle was Bernie Sanders, but it actually wasn't Bernie Sanders. He just got it before Bernie Sanders did. There was another Bernie Sanders somewhere in the United States. Yes. And this this guy looked to be about 16, 18 years old, <laughs> uh, living somewhere in the Midwest. And he would just Snapchat pictures of his snake. Of and, his snake. And he would put little top hats on them. Sneaky snake. And he would always snap at 420 with a timestamp. Which is kind of funny, yes. right? So this is I so I, I I forget exactly what uh, whether he was Bernie Dot Sanders and the real Bernie Sanders was, but his name on Snapchat had to be changed, I guess, to not Bernie Sanders. Ah, instead of the real Bernie Sanders being the real Bernie Sanders, like Trump, he the other guy had to give up something. So he's not confused. With exactly. The... And I'm sure this was not his own decision. He probably got a lot of followers, up to millions, I, right? I, Watching his little snake. I watched it every day. <laughs> it, was, it was very entertaining. It's so, really funny. So Bernie, Bernie, the, not Bernie Sanders. The unofficial your, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Is your favorite Snapchatter. Pretty cool. Pretty so cool. Um, some cool things that I wanted to point out about the differences was um, probably one of my favorite snaps was by Hillary Clinton. And this is all when uh, the time when Trump was saying he's going to be more presidential. Yeah. You remember he that was point? That. In the, in he, the... he was always promising that. Yes. And so Hillary Clinton, who in general, going back to your question about who's doing this, it was mm -hmm. definitely a curated effort. There was thought into her Snapchats. And so um, she used the face swap lens to face swap Trump with portraits of famous presidents like Abraham Lincoln, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then they would, she would play these very controversial things that he had said about you know, Muslims or about Megyn Kelly. Is this what Abraham Lincoln would say type of thing? So that was a creative, creative use. Um, cool. Then you had, so I remember there was one time when Chris Christie, uh, who didn't seem to be a great He was on Snapchat too? He was on Snapchat right. for, for very briefly. Um, But what he actually did is during the Iowa State Fair, which is kind of where politicians try to look normal, eating a hot dog, whatever. Uh, he gave the phone, handed over his Snapchat account basically to his daughter, who was much more tech savvy and had like a 500 second story of them uh, at the fair. So this kind of handing 500 over. 500 second story. It's a long story. It was long. It was long. Um, and then you had Martin O'Malley, who was basically only Snapchatting when he was playing guitar. I thought was quite odd, as well as him planking to work out his abs, getting ready for one of the primary debates, which I thought was a bit much. Hashtag weird. Hashtag weird. Exactly. But the, the what I really was interested in and what I really want to get to is Snapchat to be used as a political attack. How can you do that? Because you're only point from like your point of view, right? Like, how can you? I mean, I guess I, I guess you'll tell me. Yes. Which was through geo filters. So the first example was um, there was a debate, a primary debate, where Donald Trump said he would not participate 
because of there was some controversy with Fox News and Megyn Kelly being a moderator. Honestly, there have been so many controversies with Trump that I forgot <laughs> about this one. So, yeah, there was one where he did not participate. And it was just before the uh, Iowa caucuses, was the first step of the Republican um, presidential primary. And uh, so Ted Cruz started having this message of where is ducking Donald? Ducking Donald. And they sponsored his campaign, sponsored a um, a targeted geofilter to Des Moines, Iowa with a rubber duck with a funny hair. The Trump hair. Where is ducking Donald? (laughs) So kind of to to spark. And it was also being promoted on his Twitter account. And so that was kind of the first political attack ad that, that that's I, cool that i haven't I seen that uh on snapchat i guess it's because i didn't follow ted cruz mm. Mm. and so then the next example which is an interesting example of sort of trolling with the geo filter was the tech savvy clinton campaign who there was a trump rally at the anaheim convention center in california and they geo targeted a filter for the trump rally so when supporters were snapping from the Trump rally, they would see a geo filter that had a quote by Trump, which said, I sort of hope a housing crash happens because the people like me would go and buy. So sort mm-hmm. of trolling his supporters with an anti-Trump message, I thought was pretty, pretty clever. Um, then we have um, an example before the first uh, debate between Hillary Clinton and Trump. So the first kind of presidential um, aspect and uh, Trump. Trump's campaign bought a nationwide political geofilter, which can run about a half million dollars. That's how much they... Wow, I was just going to ask how much can this one cost? That's a lot. And it was basically just saying debate day, Donald J. Trump versus Crooked Hillary. So kind of had a, a little bit of an attack in there. And just some stats from from Snapchat is that a national geofilter generally reaches 40 to 60% of daily Snapchatters. Which, if we take the U.S. and Canada, that comes out to around 30 million people. That's a whole lot of potential voters right there. Exactly. Um, now, going back to Hillary Clinton um, and fast forwarding a bit to the election day. This is when they really poured some money into Snapchat, where Trump had a general election day filter, go vote. But Hillary Clinton bought a lens. You know, one of these things where you take a selfie and you can change whether you're like a... Your face looks like a duck or an antelope. Exactly. Uh, something along these lines. And so what it would do, it would basically fill you in as Hillary Clinton with her hair and one of her trademark suits. And Bad suit nation. <laughs> and when you opened your mouth, she would shimmy, which was yes. from the... Uh, the which first is a famous GIF or GIF uh, from that presidential debate when she was giving a satisfactory move. Exactly. Exactly. And so apparently on average, users play with a sponsored lens for about 20 seconds. So it's a kind of interactive way to engage in the in the campaign. And those run from about three hundred to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars per day. Actually, not as much as geofilters, right? No, which one was the more expensive one? Well, Maybe I divagate. We don't know because they use all different metrics to calculate them. Okay, but no. don't go there. No, it's enough. No. enough, enough details. Okay, so I've been I've been rambling on about Snapchat. That was my major point. Uh, it was very exciting. Uh, definitely something new. Um, and I, there are lots of things to talk about, but uh, I'm ready to give you my second yes, point. Yes, please if do. I, if everyone is ready, um, I'm continuing down this kind of uh, underground operational thing. Like first I gave you bots and second thing I gave you, it's fake news and it's nothing new. Everybody's obsessing over fake news. But I think it's interesting from 
because it, uh, from a political perspective, because it raises a lot of side issues. Uh, so fake news in and of themselves perhaps are not so crucially important as a new thing. They've been around like lies uh, in print since print existed and took different forms in the video age and so on. So there's nothing totally, totally new about fake news themselves. But it's interesting because in the social media world, the potential of fake news to spread and reach and be out of control for everybody is much, much amplified. And I think this is an interesting phenomenon that obviously has been picked up by Facebook itself. Uh, and um, I'm just looking a little bit at my notes so I don't say anything wrong that Facebook might not like to hear. Um, oh, Facebook, we like you. Don't worry about it. But um, originally they said that they have nothing to do with uh, influencing the spread of fake news. And uh, actually they realized this was not quite the right message to send to advertisers saying, hey, what you read on Facebook doesn't matter. Uh, so they said, okay, fake news do matter and we'll create an algorithm to address them. And this is something that happened two days ago or three days ago at most, which is uh, on the 15th of December, just to place this chronologically at some point. Uh, and that means that Facebook will make it easier to report fake news uh, by flagging this out uh, in a little uh, field close to the post. Uh, they will hire third-party fact-checkers, and that would appear as a flag already in your feed. And I think this is interesting because they had a, um, a moment where they did have this controversy because internal Facebook staffers were sort of charged with being too left-leaning, and they had to go before Congress and shut down the uh, Facebook trending, I think it was called. Yes, exactly. So the third-party aspect there was a I bias, right? And this is a this is supposed to be a company that follows a ten-point criteria list of how to detect if a news um, is at risk of being fake. And the third thing that Facebook is doing is to eliminate spoof domains. I think it's pretty funny. It's a thing. spoof domain. A spoof domain. I love it. It's uh, fake news sites. They sound very legit but they're actually entirely uh, fake. And I, I will just give you some uh, titles. Yes, please do. Um, USConservativeToday.com USADailyPolitics.com um, Where do you think these uh, websites actually are based? Do you have any idea? Uh, I have an idea. Maybe an old Cold War uh, rival. Not as, not, it's not there. It's actually a little, it's still Europe uh, and it's still kind of Slavic speaking. It's the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Of Macedonia. So um, the teenagers uh, in Macedonia have made a pretty good buck, something like three to $5,000 a month, which in Macedonia is huge, uh, by um, basically selling clickbait. So they would uh, they would take news from uh, conservative websites in the U.S. and they would repost them with sensationalist headlines on these domains that they have created and owned. Like uh, as I said, USADailyPolitics.com. How can you not believe something that comes from USA Politics? Which the domains you could probably buy on GoDaddy.com for a dollar. Right? Exactly, their investment was zero. Their work was not so much, but their effects were huge because there was no one to dispute them. And some of the most popular stories are really huge to this day and any kind of errata basically got lost um, so did you know that according to the fake news of the uh, of the world uh, Pope Francis endorsed Donald Trump and forbade 
all Catholics to vote for Hillary Clinton. That would probably be the first time that there has been a papal endorsement of an uh, American presidential candidate. Am I, am I yeah, right? Yeah, I believe this is a very unusual thing, but that didn't matter. That didn't matter. It was extremely shared. Also, very popular. Uh, I'm looking at um, top three. Clinton said that more people like Trump should run for office, which he obviously never said. And third point, Mike Pence proclaimed uh, Michelle Obama as the most vulgar first lady. So these are the type of stories that circulate in the fake news universe. And they were really, really more popular than New York Times articles mm. in terms of the shares they would get. So I think this is very interesting because um, it raises questions of accountability in terms of Who's, whose responsibility is it that these news are spread? And of course, mega questions, which I'm sure we're not going to have the time to discuss right now about journalism, the future of journalism, the future of truth, uh, and so on. Yeah, because I, I want to press you a little bit on the, the fake news definition. So what constitutes fake news? Is it focus on the fake or is it focus on the news? Because from a journalist side, there's a, you know, when if you study journalism, there's a lot of questions about what is news actually? Right. Soft news and hard news and these different distinctions. Or is it about what is fake? Because for me, when I hear fake news, one of the examples that I think of is um, something that came from Infowars, which was kind of this conspiracy theory. Um, you know, Alex Jones hosts this uh, sort of conspiracy theory website and program that um, was brought on board with the Trump administration. And I remember seeing and I think it was also on the head of Drudge Report as well. Hillary hates everyday Americans. And it was coming from one of the leaked uh, John Podesta emails. And that phrase was, in fact, in the email. But it was taken out of context, which was they were discussing what to use in a speech, how to refer to Americans. They were saying Hillary hates the term everyday Americans. She would rather use something like hardworking Americans or similar. But just taking a screenshot of Hillary hates Americans and spreading that on Facebook, it's not really fake. But is it it's just hardly spun. And that's kind of um, I think this would fall under fake news because you would provide the reader with a wrong interpretation of that thing. So uh, decontextualization, to use a very fancy long word, that would be definitely under fake news. But some of the things that I quoted are blatantly non-factually correct. Like Mike Pence never, ever, ever said that Michelle Obama is the most vulgar first lady. And obviously, Pope Francis did not endorse Donald Trump. So this is just factually untrue. There's not even a misinterpretation of it. It's simply wrong. But this makes headlines. And these teenagers in Macedonia, which are the most famous fake news uh, site owners were saying, why do you do this? Well, before that, before before going into politics, we used to do a lot about health. So we own also like 16 health news uh, sites. But there's so much <clears throat> there's so much more money to be made out of presidential election news that we decided to profile ourselves into this. And they were saying this before the election. If Trump is to lose the elections, one of the guys said, I'm going to I'm going to reprofile my site into sports. So hmm. they're absolutely ruthless. They have they have no 
no uh, compunction about you know switching from one thing to another. Whatever gives them clicks. And they were trying to say they were asked, "Why do you pick on Trump? Why are you pro-Trump? But why are you not pro-Clinton?" And the answer is like only pro-Trump sells. So people would share and click on pro-Trump messages and very few pro-Clinton fake news were distributed. So it wasn't a good investment for them. Mm -hmm. So it was a very hardcore economic argument behind that. And Facebook treated them as equally as any other news site. And that's why they could really make a buck. Because I'm sure ultimately they probably drove some advertising revenue for Facebook or other providers. Yeah, probably. Again, I don't want to think about this great capitalist platform, which is uh, Facebook, how exactly it works. It's also kind of obscure how exactly it works. But there was a a mutually beneficial activity to have fake news that drive a lot of interest, that spread and keep people reading. Um, And it's just, it sort of brings up a question of, think about this third party that's brought in to fact check the news, right? What kind of power does that, does that come with? Well, again, it's not that the fake news will be eliminated, but they will be flagged. There will be a there will be a warning. This is perhaps not entirely accurate, and it will be up to the individual reader to either uh, report back to Facebook that this was an actual correct story and they shouldn't flag it again, or it would be a cautionary message saying, oh, maybe I should not go to whatever I was saying before USADailyPolitics.com. Maybe it's not really. Easy. It'd be interesting, also, just thinking out loud, if over time, then you should be able to find out who's the most credible, or at least who's the least credible news outlets to, to go Yeah, to. apparently also there's a high rotation. So these sites disappear as soon as they are uh, discovered and labeled as fake news, they will be dropped. The domain will be up for purchase again, and they will be relocated in a virtual universe somewhere else. But it's interesting because it opens up the possibility for a lot of manipulation, of course, and it opens up a discussion about interference with, with information. And this is something that, again, I think I'll have the chance to talk more about towards, uh, towards the end of our conversation. Uh, hint, hinting at your third third present, maybe? Oh, I'm hitting into the future. My, my look into the crystal bowl uh-huh. of uh-huh. prediction for the next year. All right. All right. Then I'll go ahead and give my second gift, which I've titled Trump's Twitter Pulpit. So are you familiar with the term bully pulpit? Mm, not entirely, no. So Theodore Roosevelt coined this term bully pulpit which referred to the uh, using the presidency as a platform to uh, speak to a lot of people and advocate a sort of positive agenda. And interestingly, I looked up, um, I, it never actually made sense to me. This is something you learn about as an American in growing up in civics class. Civic so. education, I bet. So fun fact, did you know that the word bully originally meant sweetheart? No way. And in Roosevelt's time, <laughs> this was actually an adjective that meant something positive or wonderful. This is absolutely the least expected fun fact so, of the day. So today, Trump... My sweet bully. <laughs> that's how it was used. So Trump's bully pulpit, which is Twitter, seems to be more in line with how we think about yeah, bullying today, right? Exactly. And a recent study that was reported in the New York Times found that one out of every nine Trump tweets was an insult of some kind. One out of nine. So the real bully pulpit. And this is, you know, not only for criticizing political rivals, but also primary competitors, Hillary Clinton, private citizens, the media, issues like the Iran deal, rigged electoral system, Tons of insults on Twitter. And there's been a lot of talk about this and, and plenty of speculation of what this means. 
for the presidency, whether he continues this and, and, you know, kind of going around the media and sort of offering his own uh, interpretation to the public. And so there's plenty to talk about. But I picked out two things, which is what does the 140 character limit of Twitter mean for this? It kind of simplifies what kind of message you can give. So there's actually in these tweets, there's very little substance. So it seems to be more of like an agenda setting tool where he can steer the focus of the media. Maybe he's just, I don't know, I'm speculating, obviously, but maybe he's just like any regular Twitter user who's looking for self-expression, right? That's the academic term for just being out there and sharing how you feel at the moment, in the moment, not filtering yourself very much, but sharing your state of mind, state of heart, maybe. Mm, Which is, on the one hand, refreshing to have um, a sort of personal connection because Obama was also, he had the most Twitter followers ever, actually, in 2008. All right. And uh, I think there's kind of a parallel with Trump breaking all sorts of records for engagement with social media. But the way that Obama uses it and the way that Trump uses it is quite different. They have different emotions to share, maybe. That's where the difference lies. Obama was kinder and more thankful. And it seems that, according to your stats, one out of nine of Trump's tweets is just anger, right? Mm. Or insults. Or insults pretty much go together, I guess. But so what is this kind of what do you think this has on, you know, the ability or the power to basically divert the media? Almost every tweet Trump sends gets its own media coverage. I don't even this is a very interesting question. Obviously, I've been thinking about is noticing this. Um, There's um, an interesting and slightly scary to the established way of doing politics uh, uh, way of interpreting this, namely that Twitter doesn't really have advisors to to control his PR messages, but it's really like in the moment self-expressing. And that may have some damaging consequences for diplomatic relations, I'm thinking first, because there's something called Twitter diplomacy, which research is being conducted, including here at the University of Copenhagen, right? Uh, But I don't think they have this in mind when they say Twitter diplomacy, because they would think more of the classic diplomatic, uh, more polite, more even-handed communication, which apparently Trump is just not. So I'm not I'm not sure exactly what it means that every traditional media is hurrying to uh, Trump's Twitter feed and quoting his anger moments or insulting tweets. I'm not sure it's a I'm not sure where it goes. No, uh, and it's all speculation at this point. But I do think it's interesting that a 70 year old, extremely controversial president is sort of in the Twitter spotlight. Yeah, actually, it was interesting just to speculate a little bit further that Twitter was not invited at the tech uh, meeting that Trump had with Facebook and Amazon and other big shots. Uh, And apparently uh, this was because of some disagreement with uh, Jack Dorsey, who is the president and CEO of of Twitter. But also it's interesting because excluding Twitter from this high tech meeting would be giving himself some bad points since he governs by Twitter to exaggerate things a bit. Um, It's interesting also if he will change, if he will change his discourse as he becomes president, like becoming presidential, you were talking about, will that be at all reflected in his Twitter behavior? I'm not sure. But as Twitter users kind of decline over time and Twitter's, you know, it's not making that much money vis-a-vis Facebook, that um, maybe Jack Dorsey wasn't invited to the meeting. But uh, I think I think there's some positive aspects for them in terms of market cap by having Trump on Twitter. 
I'm sure they benefit from a lot of traffic, if nothing else, uh, and a lot of engagement with with the tweets that Trump Trump says. Do you have any numbers? How many people retweet him? I don't or? have numbers on that, but I do have that. Take a guess. How many Twitter followers did Trump have when he launched his candidacy in July 2015? Honestly, I absolutely have. I absolutely have no clue. Three million. Three million. It's not bad to start with. Not bad. He's a public figure, right? Um, so he had quite a bit of following beforehand. And it's increased to, as of today, about 17 and a half million. 17 and a half. It's a That's lot. a pretty high number. It's a wow. lot. Wow. So he does have something to lose if he would be uh, logging off uh, Twitter uh, completely. Uh, probably nobody nobody wants that, except for diplomats. They'd rather have him throw away his Twitter account so they can do negotiations in the old-fashioned way. But I think this 17.5 million figure, I'd like to know how many people signed on just to follow Trump. There's got to be some. Yeah, it's curious. This is more more research to be done. More research to be done. We we look into the future with many question marks, very obviously. So that was essentially my second gift. I was talking about um, Trump and the Twitter pulpit. And again, there's a lot of speculation, but it's something to watch in the future. And I'll always remember the original meaning of bully. Yes, yes. Most importantly. so well, Not necessarily, but very, very spectacularly so. So going to my third and last uh yeah let's call it still gift um to uh, the listeners of this great podcast um i was thinking about live streaming as mm. a defining feature of 2016 and again it's not something that it's connected to facebook but twitter since uh, very recently, like December 2016, also introduced this, uh, not through a, an app, not through Periscope or any other app, but directly in Twitter. So now you can live stream on any app you want, obviously on Snapchat, you can do that. You can also, you can do it on Facebook and you can do it on Twitter. But Facebook, Which is, by the way, just a recent development um, to do it on Instagram or Facebook. Instagram as well. That's You're totally right. So it's very much up and coming in terms of the technological ability. And you'd think this is mostly for fun things. Like, again, you're at a concert or you're uh, partying with some cool people and you want to share that live because you have a vibe that you can't you can't find anywhere else. I think that was the intent uh, of having it online. But I think it has been politicized in an unexpected way uh, by... Um, by people who are particularly active in the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, who have been very uh, keen on documenting police brutality. Um, and again, we know about these police brutality acts much more now because of such live streaming of extremely tragic events. I think the most famous one took place in on July 7th of this year when uh, Diamond Reynolds uh, uh, live streamed the death of her boyfriend, Philando Castile, who was bleeding as a consequence of a police attack, uh, apparently controversial. This was the one when he got stopped for speeding and yes. the girlfriend. Right. Yes, that's the famous case. I think all our listeners have heard of it because it was such an immense news, right? And so tragic. It really it was very difficult to watch. And imagine the girlfriend 
doing this live because she couldn't save him. So the least that she could do was to make this public and to raise awareness of that particular activity and, in a sense, seek justice. And like that, many other examples, I'm not going to go and give, give too, many, too many names there, but police brutality has been highlighted through live streaming, and that mobilized a lot of people who uh, later used the hashtag Black Lives Matter. And apparently this did change to some extent the self-perception of of law enforcement uh, to some extent. And it's interesting from a, from a social media and politics uh, point of view because it brings this testimonial, this kind of unfiltered, this is happening right here, right now, and you got to know about it. Citizens' involvement in, in newsmaking, right? And it gets at this idea of the importance of social media as a news source or a news organization, essentially, with all this different news going through it. And I, about the same time, I think, as this live streaming uh, incident, and I remember the kind of media coverage was compounded because there was also a similar incident in Baton Rouge. Exactly. Some days after, I think, the same thing more or less uh, happened. Right, um, which is kind of scary. That's about an hour from where I grew up. So it really hit it close to home for, for me. I think this is happening for everyone who is witnessing through Facebook these kind of things because Facebook also lets you know that this is live streaming right now and it's like, wow, mm. my goodness, can this be true? So questions of accuracy, questions of truth, again, something that we were discussing a little bit before, they all are problematized because there's no filters to be had in live streaming, at least that's the, that's the impression, right? There's a section of events right there. You can also think how this could be used in a protests and manifestations where you could say governments would try to stifle uh, opposition, how you can document things that governments would rather not um, not show you. The same, I think, I don't know if it's been as much live streaming, but definitely part of it in, in the um, attack on Aleppo, the Syrian city that um, has been the site of a major, major civil war. Um, and that that also was available to viewers through the internet and through the perspective or through the eyes of locals, which was giving a lot of um, emotional load uh, to the viewer, I think. And it's I don't know whether it's it's how real is too real, because the example um, of the Alton Sheldon shooting um it wasn't through Facebook's live streaming, but it was recorded. And I remember a friend had sent me that in a in a message without any text. And I, I checked it when I woke up and I had no idea what I was expecting. And all of a sudden I see a guy get shot and it was just like, oh, my God. You yes, know, what is that? What is going on? And so I didn't really want to see that. Um, yes. and, and so I guess it's good for me to know as a as a person, but at the same time, it's a bit disturbing. It's definitely disturbing. And this is also a very interesting question that is raised. What is, as it's live, you cannot put a, a um, PG, XXX, whatever, uh, on these things because you don't know what the content is about. So the question of filtering is eliminated because you don't know what they're going to be live streaming on. And that's an interesting thing that can be very negative or uh, very disturbing, or it could be very positive because, as I was saying, in uh, in less democratic societies, this could be a way for um, oppositional forces that lack access to mainstream news to make their voices heard and accessible to a wider audience, uh, much beyond that was uh, that which was available to them before. So I think 
social media has is a tool, right? And live streaming is a feature of this uh, social media landscape that empowers some at the same time as it may also have some form of ne- negative side, I want to say, uh, to it. But it's interesting as a feature and it's interesting to see the political use it has been given, even though it was not meant necessarily for a political purpose. Mm. Yeah. Um, in our episode on political campaigning um, with uh, Jason Campbell, he was saying that live streaming is kind of where the political side of things is going. Candidates are very interested in being able to broadcast live. I was also thinking about this on Snapchat, right? That live streaming and Snapchat, both of them try to convey the more private, the behind the scenes, the spontaneous and ultimately the authentic version of reality of anyone. It could be, as I said, a protest or it could be a candidate's own preparation for things. But you see a chunk of real life and that, in a sense, has an emotional impact that regular news that are told in the proper words don't have. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it raises a lot of interesting questions about censorship, etc. Exactly. Huh. All right. Three good gifts. I think that's uh, worthy of a review on the iTunes store, uh, if I may say so myself. But um, now I have my last one, which I'll keep it short. It has to do with this idea of, I guess, mobile phones, which is 72% of U.S. adults get their news via a mobile phone. 72? So there's a clear trend in getting news from your phone. And I mean... I don't have stats on this, but it's quite uh, obvious that social media is generally accessed uh, on a mobile device. I think 62% of uh, young adults and adults in the U.S. as well get their news through Facebook. Again, generally, not necessarily on mobile, but yeah, they are basically two-thirds. Yeah, and so there's been some studies done. There's one by the, the Zenith Media Consumption Forecast that says Americans spend two and a half hours per day on their phone with 52 minutes on a desktop. So clearly more time on the phone. This this number radically increases for, for younger, you know, between 13 and 18 uh, year olds. So what is the social impact of news consumption on a phone versus a newspaper, or I guess more appropriately for today, a desktop? Because for me, the major issue is that I think people are less likely to fact check on a phone because even though it's only, you know, relative to 20 years ago, it's yeah. very easy to check sources, but for kind of today's consumption habits, even opening up a new window on your Android or iPhone is just a little bit more... It's an extra step. It's an extra step. So what are your thoughts on this sort of mobile... I think your it's news from very interesting. Uh, I'm I'm wondering if there's some more systematic observation done on this. I haven't really read anything myself, but I'm sure there are people out there interested. So we'll hopefully follow on this. Um, it's interesting. I think one of one of the interesting points is that you always are connected, and in a sense, this feeds back into my my point on live streaming. You're always a potential witness to political events. So you can walk down the street and you suddenly witness something that raises your interest. You can take your phone, you either live stream or you uh, record a video or you take a series of pictures. You can even talk to the people that were involved. So you can then communicate this in a citizen journalist witness type of uh, type of description to all your friends and from there to the world, right? So I think it's an empowerment that mobile phone communication has. And I think, again, mostly this works in 
um, democratizing or less democratic society where you can report uh, election fraud or um, some form of crime, corruption, all these things that could be easily, easily um, documented with a mobile phone, which is also very discreet because of its size. You don't have to have a mega camera in the face of, of somebody. You can... You can Um, have a more accessible way to document irregularities. This is one side, I think, the increased yeah, citizen journalist type of perspective. This yes. is the, the citizens are always armed to watchdog on, yes. on certain things. At the other hand, because following uh, the, same, the same idea that you always have your phone on you, I wonder what people are actually doing when they're reading the news on their phone. So in an ideal situation, you're kind of at home focusing on the news. But in real life, you're commuting, scrolling through your phone, you're standing in line, you have one ear to something else. So are you actually intaking the information that... Again, that brings me to the fake news, right? Uh, if you are, I'm speculating totally uh, wildly here, but it seems slightly logical, so to say, that uh, if you are on the run where, with your year to one thing and the other to something else, then maybe you're not really fact-checking or you're not concentrating on the accuracy of your news sources as much. And then maybe you're more likely to buy into a message that otherwise, if you would be sitting at your desktop, uh, you wouldn't necessarily buy because it would give you some alarm signals. This is not quite as it should be, or I don't know this site, or this seems like an odd English term. Maybe it's not really, it's a translation or something. And I think instead, going back to the previous point, is that you just continue scrolling versus fact-checking right then, as you would maybe by opening up a tab on your desktop. It could be very interesting also to think from a journalist's point of view uh, that the importance of headlines and visuals is just so overwhelming because I believe on your mobile phone, again, speculatively, I think you are not so much likely to click on the full news story, but you're likely to stick to the little paragraph that comes with the with the main title and the picture illustrating it. So you get your news in a super fragmented way. In a sense, what you're saying about Twitter and 140 characters goes all the way to these kind of uh, news feed previews because I don't think a lot of people really go and read the story. I remember uh, reading some comments to NPR posts saying like, you guys are commenting on something totally off topic. You never read the article. Stop being particularly uh, enraged about this or that because it's addressed in the article if you only clicked on it. So many people even comment on Facebook posts without having read the full text. So mm. headline, byline, picture, that's all you get. And this is where mobile phones come into play as a shortcut to mini news. Right. Yes. And it seems that that's where things are heading. Yeah, it's getting to fragmented information. And that obviously can affect politics in a pretty big way if you're reduced to Um, sound bites, right, or the equivalent in text of sound bites, then you have to be a very adept communicator as a politician to get your message through simply and easily. And that also simplifies the nature of politics. Not everything can be reduced in 140 characters right. or the equivalent. Right. So, yes, lots of things that we've touched on for the for now and with future implications. Um, but now we also have each picked out one, how would you say, important avenue to think about for 2017. Yes. I want to I wanna ask you, actually, first. Can you go first, this one? Uh, yes, I can go first. So 2017 is going to be the year of what? Well, I have more of a an observation about this year, something that bothers me personally. 
which about is 2016? About 2016, which is the cannibalization of Snapchat. And I'll talk about that in a second. But my broader question is, can new social media platforms ever really successfully carve a niche in the market? Or do we truly have an oligarchy of social media providers? Facebook, Facebook Twitter, <laughs> Instagram. Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. Exactly. And this has all sorts of implications because it's kind of common knowledge that um, Facebook tried to acquire Snapchat in 2013 for $3 billion. And um, Mark Zuckerberg actually flew out before this deal to meet uh, Evan Spiegel, who's the CEO of Snapchat, already in 2012. All right. And apparently, according to an interview with Forbes, um, Evan Spiegel said that it was kind of an intimidating meeting where uh, Zuckerberg said that we have an app that's just like yours and we're going to crush you with it. So threat kind of intimidating him and this was an app called facebook poke facebook poke wasn't poke something like absolutely ancient in facebook right and you terms? still you still can poke someone today but there was an app called facebook poke which okay. was essentially trying to take over Snapchat's i've never heard chip. of it i must say so it was built in 12 days it's kind of showing the resource capacity of, of facebook right it didn't really catch on and then a year and a half later facebook released a second app trying to take over Snapchat's market share, which was called Slingshot. And Slingshot was essentially Snapchat that you had to already message back before you received a message. So Slingshot being the idea. Ah, yes. Okay, it makes sense. The name makes sense. Exactly, yes. that you have, to, you have to respond to each other. And fast forward to this year, we see Facebook and Facebook-owned Instagram essentially copying all sorts of aspects of Snapchat from disappearing photos on Instagram to um, to Facebook just recently releasing its Messenger Day, um, Messenger Day, which is essentially a story on on Facebook. And I'm really surprised at how obvious this copycatting is for Instagram. The story feature is called stories. There's no even trying to hide that it's a, a blatant copy of Snapchat. And so I'm interested in this because it's not, it seems anyway, that it's not so much that Facebook is necessarily trying to get Snapchat's users insofar as, for example, in Russia, Instagram stories are hugely popular because they don't have Snapchat. So, uh -huh, they don't have Snapchat in Russia. So Facebook is able to, or at least it's not popular yeah. there. So Facebook is actually able to stomp out where Snapchat might grow. They also have the resources to test and tailor certain features to different publics. So Messenger Day yeah. was actually tested in Poland for months before it was released in the States. So they kind of have this... They yeah, I see your point of being like a mega dominant conglomerate of everything taking over and not leaving breathing space for any new challengers. So how can we have, um, is it possible for a small startup to essentially become hey, a rival to Facebook? I have an answer to you. Regulation. Regulation. Well, you know, we are in Europe. This is the European Union as the regulatory state. That's what it's known as. So anti-monopoly regulation, this is what Windows had, or Microsoft with its product, Windows had to fight for quite a lot and with Internet Explorer as well. That I think uh, there is a, there's an interest of states uh, to not allow for too much uh, of a monopoly, be it on social media communication or news or any, any other activity in the hands of a single corporation. And Trump has recently talked about bringing some antitrust suits against Amazon. So maybe we'll see a similar thing on, on social media. And 
I don't know if that's positive or or negative. What do you think? I I really don't know. I generally because um, because I believe more diversity is more beneficial for for the individual, either as a citizen or as a consumer. I would welcome diversity, even when it comes to to social media products and platforms. Uh, uh, but again, it's difficult to. To foresee a competitor to Facebook, think about Google Plus, right? Google, the the other um, mega big uh, internet company. They try to rival with Facebook by creating this uh, Google Plus, which is not entirely a flop, but for the most part, yeah, it is. And I just want to end saying that it. it I will not post a Instagram or Facebook story because I do like Snapchat and I do think that it has deserved that marketplace. But you post Instagram stories. I did post occasionally just to try it out. I was curious, really, is this, do they offer anything? And just at the very user user interface comment from a private uh, capacity, me as a user of Instagram, Snapchat is just so much better. Yeah. Uh, in the user experience for me, and not, not necessarily uh, doing commercial here for Snapchat, but just from my personal point of view, I really enjoy Snapchat. I like the features involved. I like the geo filters. I like the face swapping. I like all those masks you get on. I like the way you can write. And in a sense, I do like they're not as big as the other ones. I like the underdog, if you want. Mm. So that, that was that was my looking forward, is can we actually have a rival to uh, something like Facebook? It seems a long way off, but can we even have some sort of diversity in social media past Facebook, Instagram, and and Snapchat. But what was your, or do you have something? I wanted to just say that we shouldn't be maybe too West, Western-centric, because I know that in Russia, because you just mentioned, it made me think of kontaktui. Uh, my Russian is also not particularly good, but those who know Russian will recognize this as the Russian alternative to Facebook, and that's much more popular. Um, also in China, there is no Facebook, because the state doesn't allow it as far as I know um, and so they have their own Facebook or more like Twitter thing anyway they have another kind of social media and this may be the case in other environments which I'm not familiar with let me just let you know then that there's a Snapchat like app in Korea called Snow which is very popular in Japan and China with about 80 million users and Facebook's aggressively trying to buy that at the oh, moment. Surprise, so, surprise. Surprise, surprise. Zero surprise. Speaking of surprises, what is your um, looking forward to 2017? Oh, these are my papers falling on the floor. Bonus uh, gift. Uh, bonus gift, uh, or me me trying to be uh, me trying to be a predictor of things. This is very risky business. Um, but um, trust. Trust is the major keyword that's going to be defining 2017. And again, I don't have a story to tell about trust, but everything that I was puzzled by in 2016, so the bots, the fake news, the live streaming, all this raised to me questions of authenticity and trust. Who do you trust? Who do you trust as a citizen looking for information? Which media channel? Well, I would know at some point. Which politician do I trust? Is it the real Donald Trump, really real, so to say? Is it the Twitter persona of Donald Trump the real thing? Or is it just a fake reality TV version of Donald Trump transposed in 140 characters? So it's a question of authenticity and trust. And I think, to make a true prediction, uh, that we will see the the age of gatekeepers 
coming up. I don't know if it's 2017 or 2018, but it's going to happen soon because I think a lot of news consumers are going to be alarmed by this uncertainty. It would diminish the quality of their news consumption simply in market terms. So they will look either for curated sites or they will curate their own sites or maybe they will construct or somebody will construct algorithms that would enable Uh, users to customize their newsfeed with trustworthy, from their point of view, sources. And that could be also uh, alarming because it it would increase the echo chamber, filter bubble kind of thing uh, effect, which obviously is the most problematic from a democratic theory uh, point of view. But it also may be opening up for diversity um, in terms of news consumptions. I don't know. But I think really there's need for some form of trust and fact-checking and some form of authority that regular citizens would like to look up to. And I think politicians would also try to ride that wave somehow. And maybe as you were saying, key word here might be regulation? Yeah, I think it's not too... I mean, uh, just uh, recently, very recently, um, uh, in November 2016, the European Parliament had a hearing on um, algorithmic transparency, which is a very funny term combination, but basically pertaining to uh, everyone's right to explanation. And what that means is means that Facebook and all the other uh, social media giants would have uh, to be pressed when asked to release the way algorithms work for the specific case in point. So the citizens have the right to get an explanation why they are being uh, judged by an algorithm or why they are being fed certain news by some algorithm mm-hmm. and so on. So there, there can be, and I think we will see more regulation in that domain. Interesting. Interesting. Well, only time will tell. Exactly. Wise words. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that is our six gifts plus bonus under the tree. I don't know about you, but uh, my mom usually would save or Santa Claus would usually save Uh the last the last gift. Uh, I don't think anyone under 15 is listening to the social media and politics podcast. So maybe (laughs) we'll leave that in uh, for production. Yes. But um, Anna Maria, thanks so much for for joining us. Um, I I don't have your Twitter handle on on hand. Do you wanna Do you wanna plug it? Um, I know I don't I don't remember it by heart. It's something with my name, but I don't remember. Maybe maybe that will be something for the Facebook Facebook page of this lovely uh, podcast. Yes. So if you want to follow Dr. Segestin, you'll have to. Uh, like our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash social media and politics podcast. Or if you're on Twitter, you can find us there at SMNP podcast. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for for having me. Thank you listeners for uh, tuning in and um, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, on Facebook. But for now, we're going to sign off and go have a uh, end of the year Christmas beer. Or (laughs) Or whatever. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. (laughs) Yes. So um, just want to say thanks to Copenhagen University for the studio. Thanks to Peter Orbeck for editing. And thanks to Earfunk for the jams. Signing off from Copenhagen, I'm Michael Bassetta. See you next time.